0: Our scripture this morning is from Joshua 24, verses 29 to 33, and if you turn there, let me just say that it's uh, my—I've become accustomed to using uh, for the covenant name of God in the Old Testament text Yahweh. That's usually signaled by the Lord in all capital letters in your English translation. If that's unfamiliar to you, just translate it back yourself to the Lord, so I don't have to change myself, and uh, then. Just to note that in verse 32 of our text, it talks about a casita. That's a unit or some kind of measurement of money, and we don't know what the equivalent of it is, but there it is. Uh, so Joshua 24 and verse 29, beginning to read. Then after these things, Joshua son of Nun, the servant of Yahweh, died, 110 years old. <clears throat> and they buried him in the confines of his inheritance in Timnath which is in the hill country of Ephraim, to the north of Mount Gaash. And Israel served Yahweh all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and who knew all Yahweh's work that he had done for Israel. And the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel had brought up from Egypt, they buried there in Shechem, in the portion of the field that Jacob had purchased from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred casita. So it belonged to the sons of Joseph for an inheritance. And Eliezer, son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at the hill of Phineas, his son, which had been given to him in the hill country of Ephraim." This is the Word of God. I have to agree with the writer of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, I'm going to paraphrase just a bit, but when he says that if you have a choice between going to a party or walking through a cemetery, always choose the cemetery. Now that's the way the writer of Joshua ended uh, his book. You may think that these five verses are just kind of the sweepings off the factory floor after the day of work is done, a kind of a binding up of frivolous details that couldn't be managed earlier. But it's not. These verses are actually the climax of the book of Joshua. And it's as if he's saying, now before we close this part of the story, Let's take a walk through the cemetery because I want to end on a grave note. So what then can a visit to Bronze Age cemeteries tell you? Well, first of all, it speaks of a grave faithfulness. You see this in verses 30, 32? And 33, a grave faithfulness. You may wonder what places ought to grab your attention. I suppose for some of you, it's Athens, not Greece, but Georgia, uh, where uh, little football goes on and so on. And then again, um, right now, Kabul and New Orleans, things that come to our mind. But the writer here says, well, for right now, the spots that really ought to get your juices going are Timnas Sarah and Shechem and Phineas knob." Now, Shechem, uh, that was fairly prominent. It was kind of in the middle of Canaan and so on. Uh, it was, uh, it would, I suppose, being an analogous to somewhere like Noonan in Georgia. But these other places Timnasera, 18 miles northwest of Jerusalem, Phineas' Knob—we don't know where that hill of Phineas is, somewhere in the hill country of Ephraim—that would be like uh, Shady Dale and Pine Log in Georgia. Some of you may not even know those exist. Rather obscure places. But all three of these men. Are buried in these places, and the point of these places, obscure as they are, are that they are all buried in the land, in the land of promise. That impossible promise of Genesis 12, 6, and 7 has actually come to pass, you know, where, where Yahweh said to Abram, to your seed I will give this land, and at that point, he didn't have any seed. He wouldn't have any for 10 or 11 more chapters of Genesis till Isaac was born. And the land, it says, in Genesis 12, 6 and 7, was in the hand of the Canaanites who were then in the land. So here's an impossible promise, and yet now it has come to pass. And these men are buried in the land. Look at the text, verse 30, Joshua, they buried him in the confines of his inheritance in Tim the Sarah. 32, the bones of Joseph, they buried them in Shechem. Eliezer, son of Aaron, the priest, died, and they buried him at the hill of Phinehas, buried in the land. Uh, Again, an almost impossible promise. Here are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the book of Genesis and, and the fragility and the fewness, really, relatively, of those people, and yet God preserved them. And then they're in bondage for hundreds of years in Exodus, and God brings them out. And then they go through the wilderness and all the danger and the, and the uh, uh, difficulties of existence there. And then they come into the land and they face impossible odds, as the Lord said in Deuteronomy 7, seven nations larger and mightier than you are. And yet here at the end of the book of Joshua, the land has been taken and to a certain degree possessed, and these fellows are buried in promised dirt." Yahweh has been faithful. It's a grave faithfulness, but you can't lose sight of that. Now, there's something else here, perhaps, in carrying this over for ourselves that we should notice, this grave faithfulness. You notice there are two facts about what's going on here. These men have died and God is faithful. Sometimes God tends to place his faithfulness right next to our grief, doesn't he? Uh, We can't say that much for the bones of Joseph. I don't think people were especially weeping because uh, they brought Joseph's corpse back with them to Shechem and so on. That wasn't so much an immediate grief, but I'm just imagining that uh, the family of Joshua and the family of Eliezer the priest had some grief and some mourning and some sorrow over the loss of these fathers and husbands, etc. and leaders, that there was grief there and yet at the same time, where they were buried shows the faithfulness of God to His promise to give His people a place. A friend of mine uh, once referred to Elizabeth Elliot and said that uh, she wrote a little book on grief after her second husband died. You remember perhaps her first husband was Jim Elliott, who was martyred by uh, natives in Ecuador back in 1956. And later she married Addison Leach, a seminary professor, and uh, he eventually... Uh, was the victim of cancer and died. And she said that when she was grieving after her husband died, after Dr. Leach died, she said the Apostles' Creed was such a help to her. She put it this way. I realized and I saw and thought about what had not changed Apostles' Creed. Even though my husband had died. It's a sort of combination between grief and faithfulness. And sometimes God, in His mercy, places them side by side, and we need to see it. Now, secondly, our writer here speaks of a grave concern. You notice verse 31. And Israel served Yahweh all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and who knew all Yahweh's work that he had done for Israel. There's a, a tribute to the impact of Joshua and his, those associated with him, uh, and also a hint of a generation transition. But all the days of Joshua, Israel served Yahweh, even even through the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, and so on. And yet at the same time, even though it highlights the impact, the beneficial impact of Joshua and company upon Israel's faith, it also hints of a danger Israel faces. It's almost as if it raises the question, whither Israel So where will they go after this? It's a a grave concern that surfaces here, and you notice that Joshua was cognizant of this if you look at the first part of Joshua 24 and you remember that climactic challenge he gave uh, to Israel, as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. He realized that every household in Israel really had to commit themselves to covenant faithfulness to Yahweh uh, and to worship Him alone. It wasn't just his household, but others, but for him and his house, he would serve Yahweh. But this had to be an across-the-board affair. It was a commitment that had to be made in every household and so on. Well, how are things going to go post-Joshua? The text almost raises the question. And of course, you get into Judges chapter 2, and you run into generation degeneration, don't you? Because in Judges 2 verse 10, it says that after Joshua and company, there arose another generation that did not acknowledge Yahweh or the works that He had done for Israel. And that's why there's this grave concern here, this implied question, will they go on being faithful to the Lord or and be slaves of Yahweh, how will they get on from here? It is a grave concern that's raised. You know, that can, a legitimate concern really. Um, It can happen, you know, in a denomination when you think in applying that principle. You go back to 1843 in Scotland and there was a very vibrant denomination, you might say, we would call it that, that was formed. Now, the Free Church of Scotland, they set themselves apart from the Church of Scotland, the state church, and uh, they had some preeminent theologians, they had uh, gospel-centered pastors, it was quite a vigorous denomination. And uh, over 50 years, that was in 1843, and by 1893, that denomination was basically kaput. It was rifled uh, with the influx of German higher criticism and negative views of the Bible and so on. It had rifled through uh, their theologians and so on. And basically in 50 years, the denomination was kaput, we would say, doctrinally and so on, and in terms of vitality. It can happen also to a congregation, you know. Uh, also in Scotland, about, uh, I think it was 1692 or so, uh, there was a, uh, a preacher by the name of Thomas Hogg. And uh, 1692, uh, he he died, and uh, before he died, uh, he was pastor at a place called Kiltern. Uh, he told his congregation uh, that on his deathbed, that they wa- he wanted them to dig his grave at the threshold of the church so that he could be regarded as a sentinel in case they brought in an unworthy minister to serve that congregation. In fact, his tombstone buries this inscription, and I've actually seen it, This stone shall bear witness against the parishioners of Kiltern if they bring an ungodly minister in here." It can happen to a congregation. A congregation can go cold and and leave their allegiance to Yahweh and to the triune God. But then too, of course, we know that this is a warning, this is grave concern to to individuals, right? There was a a New Testament scholar in Germany back in the 19th century. His name was F.C. Bauer, B-A-U-R. He became quite a prominent New Testament scholar, well-known, etc. I understand that in his youth he was full of gospel zeal. And then, of course, he ran into some teachers, I suppose, like Schleimacher and others, uh, and he gradually lost uh, his gospel faith but he was still a New Testament scholar. And, and he proceeded on those lines, and he, you could still find him, dig him up in, in uh, biblical studies and so on. But time came when his wife was dying, and as she lay dying, he couldn't minister to her. He couldn't pray with her. He had to go find an earnest pastor somewhere in the community to come in and pray with his own wife when she was on his deathbed because he couldn't pray. He was a New Testament scholar who had no New Testament faith, and that is a grave concern. can happen to an individual. It's nothing abrupt, you know. It's usually gradual. And I don't know how you tell. There are certain symptoms sometimes. You gradually leave off public worship sporadically and so on. You find yourself seldom practicing private prayer. You make no effort really to lead your family in worship. You don't think you have time to take with your children and read and pray with them, perhaps individually and so on. After all, You're doing your best to keep your chin above water. You have work deadlines that you have to meet, and it consumes a whole lot of your time just making that living, and you may be inch by inch on your way to having a synagogue of Satan under your own roof. It's a grave concern. Now then, thirdly, you see here, though, a grave hope, a grave hope. What are we going to make of verse 32? And the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel had brought up from Egypt, they buried them in Shechem, in the portion of the field that Jacob had purchased from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred casitas. So it belonged to the sons of Israel for an inheritance. The bones of Joseph are buried in Shechem. Now, what do you do with these bones of Joseph? If you go to the very end of the book of Genesis, chapter 50, verses 24 to 26, you find This material about Joseph Bones. In that scene, Joseph is saying to his family and associates, I'm about to die, but God is going to take care of you, and he's going to bring you out of this land to the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when you go, when he takes you to that land, you must go on oath, swear to it, you must take my bones with you. He was embalmed, of course, mummified, etc. So he, he put them under oath to take his bones with him. And then when you go to Exodus 13, verse 19, you find out that that's what happened. The sons of Israel did take the body of Joseph with them when they left Egypt and went toward Canaan. And now at the end... Of Joshua 24, here come the bones of Joseph again, and they buried them in Shechem in the land. Now what do we do with that? You think through the why of that. Well, going back to the last section of Genesis 50, it shows, doesn't it, that that Joseph specifies that they must do this. It shows that though Joseph is in Egypt, he's not of Egypt that although Joseph was over Egypt at the time as a Secretary of Agriculture, he was not of Egypt. His mind was transfixed on the promise that Yahweh had given His people, that He would give them the land of Canaan, and He was so fixated on that, that He insisted that they take His very bones with them out of Egypt and bury them in that land that God had promised. That's how much he esteemed Yahweh's promise. But again you ask why? Why this mania about having your remains buried in the land of promise? Is this just a sentimental touch or is there something else going on here? I'm convinced there's something more. He wanted that because he assumed that he had a future in that land. He was assuming, sorry, he was assuming that there was such a thing as the resurrection from the dead. Now, biblical scholars, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them would frown on that. You see the conventional view, and you can see it in all kinds of handbooks and passed on, etc., is that, uh, well, Israel, you know, in the Old Testament period didn't have much hope of life beyond the grave or of resurrection from the dead. Oh, there are a few notes that are, that are late, they say. Uh, but really, uh, Israel, Israel didn't think much about life beyond, you know, they were just focused on life in the day-to-day and, and that sort of thing, as if they were sort of wooden-headed nitwits that never thought about anything beyond Uh, the horizon of their own life, even though the Egyptians had been theorizing for life after death for 3,000 years and so on. No, no, there are plenty of, there are plenty of uh, uh, indications in the Old Testament text, if you read it carefully, that indicate that there really was a grave hope. And here, I can't conceive why Joseph would have any desire or insistence like this unless he believed that he had a future in that land. Well, you say, but couldn't God raise him in Egypt? Well, of course he could, but that, that wasn't the promise in the form Joseph had it. Joseph had the promise that it was this land in Canaan that Yahweh was giving his people. And so on the basis of the form of that promise, he acted. And he assumes he has a future. Let me, let me just um, uh, take you to um, a, a, another text, and you don't need to turn to it, but you ought to look at Psalm 37 sometimes just to knock off this whole idea of, of uh, no hope in Old Testament saints and so on. In Psalm 37, verses 27 to 29, you have a threefold stress on forever. Turn from evil and do good and dwell forever. For Yahweh loves doing justice, and he will never forsake his covenant ones. They are preserved forever. But the seed of the wicked is cut off. The righteous will possess the land and dwell upon it forever. Now, you won't find commentators, whether liberal or conservative, that will touch this hardly. You almost look in vain. But what's the stress in Psalm 37? What's he trying to say? Is he saying, well, the day will come, you know, when the Lord will take the wicked out of the land, and then you'll possess it until you kick the bucket. Is that what he's saying? No, I don't think so. He's talking about possessing the land forever. It's, it, it's, you have a place in that land long term. You have to assume that he's thinking of the resurrection from the dead. uh, You're familiar with the hymn, Blessed Assurance. To some Old Testament scholars and people, they would want you to sing, Wretched assurance, the land is not mine. Why am I facing this futile old grind? Well, no, that's not it at all. No, they'll possess it forever. They are preserved forever. How can that be unless the resurrection from the dead? And that's what Joseph had in view. That's the grave hope you meet at the end of Joshua. Of course, it becomes clearer, doesn't it? This very earthly hope of our faith, when you come to Jesus' words in John 6, 39, and 40. When he says, The one who sent me, the will of the one who sent me is that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up at the last day. But the will of my Father is that whoever sees the Son and believes in Him has, present tense, has eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. That was Joseph's hope. That's the grave hope we have. And that's what buoys us up in every dark hour. Let me take you to Scotland again. In 1684, it was uh, December 24th, and a man named Robert Bailey was up for trial before the authorities. They were uh, ready to condemn him, and uh, he was a very gracious Christian man, uh, wealthy, and uh, they wanted to condemn him soon because he was in bad shape, and before he died, they wanted to lay hands on his lands and possessions. Well, they condemned him. His, his uh, charge, his crime was intercommuning with rebels, which meant that he conversed with and harbored fugitive Presbyterians. In any case, they condemned him to death, and at one o'clock in the morning on December 24, 1684, They condemned him to death between 2 o'clock and 4 o'clock that very afternoon at the Market Cross in Edinburgh, where he was to be hung until dead, his head cut off then, his body quartered, uh, and that was was his uh, condemnation. Now, he was put back in prison, of course, to await the time of his execution. And uh, someone asked him how he was. Now, let me just say, as an aside, if someone's in that kind of condition, you may not want to ask them how they are. But, but someone did, and this was his reply. Never better, and in a few hours I'll be well beyond conception. They are going to send me in pieces and quarters throughout the country. They may hack and hew my body as they please, But I know assuredly nothing shall be lost, but all these my members shall be wondrously gathered and made like Christ's glorious body." That's a grave hope. That's the hope that's here in verse 32. Now, unless you're alive when Jesus returns, of course, you too are going to face a grave situation but not a hopeless one, not if you know a risen Redeemer who has said, I am the first and the last and the living one, and I became dead. And look, I'm living into the ages of the ages, and I have the keys of death and Hades." Let us pray. Thank you, O Lord God, for the way you both sober us and hearten us. In what you place before us in your Word, that you are the God, the death-conquering God, who has given to us a Savior, who has said in line with Joseph's faith, I will raise him up at the last day. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.